I like the history to that hymn. It has a history that tells us about the gospel and the extraordinary ways that God uses his word to impact lives in unexpected ways. And I think there's a reason why this, that hymn, Silent Night, remains one of, if not the most popular of all the Christmas carols. And it's not, I think, just because of the music. The music's very good, but I think one of the reasons why is because of its words. Silent Night, as the video was just telling us, is a 200-year-old hymn, and it's in fact been translated over 300 times into 300 different languages. And is widely regarded as some, as some have said, the most Christmassy of all the Christmas carols. It sort of sets the mood. I think whenever we come to sing about our dear Savior born in a manger, we think of that hymn, Silent Night, Holy Night. I think that is so because of its words, again, written by that composer, Joseph Moore. And the words of that beloved carol lean into, I think, one of the most beautiful aspects of our Lord's birth, which, well, I'll explain in a minute. <laughs> Again, those words to the first stanza, I think, get at what I'm trying to, or I'm about to, speak to. Those words are, silent night, holy night, all is calm, all is bright. Round yon virgin, mother and child, holy infant, so tender and mild. I think within those words, there is a delightful and I think even sort of unexpected bit of tension and contrast. And even we could say paradox. Because the night of Jesus' arrival is explained within the song as a night of both uh, being silent and calm. And at the same time being described as both holy and bright. It is both of those things at the same time. On the one hand, that little night in Bethlehem was unlike, was like any other night. It was a normal night. It was a chilly night, perhaps, a dark night. People going about the city of Bethlehem, about their business, living their lives, not really thinking about anything else that was going on except for the business at hand. And yet, at the same time, in that there was in this secluded room that was more fit for a cattle than for people, a mother was giving birth to a baby boy. There had been many nights like that one before it, and there would be many nights like that one after it. And yet at the same time, on the other hand, that night in that city of David, as the scriptures call that little village of Bethlehem, that night was unlike any other night before it or since. And that's because that baby that was being born to that very ordinary little mom was no mere baby. He is, as the angel tells us in Luke chapter 2, he is... The Savior, Christ the Lord. Or as the carol says, Jesus, Lord at his birth. There's something uniquely different about the night of Jesus' nativity. It it is indeed a holy and a bright night on which Jesus entered the world. And yet by the same token, we have to keep in mind else the other side of that coin, which is that that night was incredibly ordinary. Nothing, we could say, was abnormal or exceptional about it. And I think we could even say that the most extraordinary aspect of this night was its sheer ordinariness. You have a normal set of parents, Mary and Joseph, doing their normal duty, following the laws of the Roman census, going back to the the city of their heritage. 
with an ordinary mom giving birth to an ordinary baby boy. And in fact, if not for the angels and the shepherds, no one perhaps would have ever known that, that anything out of the ordinary had happened that night. Indeed, as we read, verse 7 of chapter 2 of Luke, I think speaks to that ordinariness of Jesus' birth, as it says, and she, Mary, gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Swaddling clothes, a normal thing that would happen after any baby was born. Long, they were long strips of cloth or fabric that would be wrapped around that newborn to keep them secure, to keep them warm, to keep them feeling safe. All of which I think is indicative of how ordinary of a baby Jesus was. If you've ever been in the room when your significant other perhaps is giving birth, I can testify to the fact because I've been there for all three of mine. <laughs> it's quite a rush. <laughs> Nurses and doctors are everywhere. They're bustling about the room with all eyes locked on mom to make sure that the delivery process is going smoothly. And maybe this is just my male perspective, but I'm waiting around as the contractions get stronger. Certainly they get more intense and they slowly build and they, they keep building to that sudden moment of, of, of sheer pain, but also incredible emotion. And suddenly that baby you've been carrying for months is now in your arms. And the first thing they often do is what? They, the nurses take that newborn and they clean them all up and they suddenly place that newborn on mom's skin to skin. And there's something amazing and something powerful and there's something comforting about a mom's touch that just soothes that crying newborn who has just suddenly gone from the warmth of the womb to the cold of the world. And afterwards, your newborn is examined and then they wrap him in the warmest of blankets. I've often thought I would love one of those blankets for myself. And I think of all of that, think about how every single time I've seen each of my kids come into the world, and I'm dumbfounded at the fact that that's exactly what it looks like, except with less doctors, perhaps. When the Christ of God, the Savior, came into the world for us, all the ordinary, normal birth pains that come along with the delivery process, all of that. As the man in the video said, it was a messy night. Jesus was born in the most ordinary of ways to the most of ordinary of parents on the most ordinary of nights. And in many ways, as we would go on to learn, he would live a very ordinary life till about the age 30. In fact, at the end of Luke chapter 2, we, record, we are recorded these verses. It says, Luke 2.51, and he went down with them. And came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. And so ends all of the biblical record of Jesus' teenage and adolescent years. I think it speaks to the fact that he was an ordinary boy. I think it speaks to what Isaiah tells us in Isaiah chapter 53, where Jesus, the Messiah, the Savior, is described as having, quote, no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him, a.k.a. he was nothing 
extraordinary. Part of the reason why I think we would rather focus on all the extraordinary elements of Jesus' birth is because I think they speak to us innately. They're the parts that we like to hear. One social commentator said this, quote, For our generation, our curse is having to be ordinary. I think in many ways, no one wants to live an ordinary life. And this is something I think that often leads us to believe that being ordinary is somehow a bad thing. I think this is one of the reasons why social media exists. (laughs) All those digital platforms of popularity. They exist because we can edit and we can curate and we can meticulously make sure that our lives appear in such a way that they are always appearing extraordinary. We buy into that law that our society has made for us that says you have to make something of your life and we're not normal. Look, look at how beautiful and lavish and adventurous my life is. Look at all the pictures that I can post. (laughs) And it's funny because we only post The best picture, don't we? (laughs) This is how we always look, that picture seems to say. When in reality, two seconds before, what was happening? Chaos. (laughs) And yet, that bright and shiny, smiley picture is what people see. And we're buying into the law that look at how extraordinary our life is. It's a life and a law that we all feel it's ever-present. And it's prevalent in all of the rhetoric of our day, isn't it? Our society says what? Do more. Try harder. Make your life count. Be all that you can be. Seize your moment. Our society lives according to these laws. And it keeps us sprinting almost like hamsters on a wheel. And we're just running and we're running. And never ever getting where we hope we will ever end up. Because for that law, that law that says be extraordinary, for all that it promises, it never delivers. Why? Because there's always someone more extraordinary than you. There's always another rung that we can climb, another step that we have to take, another thing that we have to do. And in fact, those who've achieved some level of social media success, if you will, They've lamented how unfulfilling that life really is. And in fact, I was doing some research and doing some reading about some of these Instagram stars, if you will, or TikTok celebrities who have recently admitted to suffering a severe mental health crisis. And you would never know it just by looking at what they, how they make their lives be perceived, how you would look at all of the things that they post, their pictures And their videos are glossy. And they're perfect. They're very edited. Each one more unforgettable than the last. And each one gives the impression that their lives are extraordinary. They're never ordinary. But behind the scenes there is a constant barrage of frustration and doubt and anxiety and worry and dread and disappointment and depression. And there's no slowing down. There's no stopping. Each post has to be more extraordinary than the last. Each thing that we give of ourselves has to be more extraordinary than the previous one. Again, we're like hamsters running and running. No slowing down. One of these said, quote, if you slow down, you might disappear 
And in a world where views are the only thing that matters, they're the only currency that exists, disappearing is the worst fate imaginable. They would rather die than disappear, some of them even. They'd rather die than become irrelevant. No wonder, in fact, that suicide rates among young people, young social media influencers, has tripled in the last 10 years. Because they're endeavoring to be extraordinary. And to live extraordinarily. And to do so in a way that never gives them what they're after. It's sort of like this movie, It's a Wonderful Life. (laughs) What is George Bailey so consumed by in that classic Christmas movie? Living an extraordinary life that exists outside of Bedford Falls. He wants to get out of that small podunk town. Get out and explore and have an adventure. (laughs) To do something extraordinary that people will talk about in the papers. And he's never able to do it. Every time he thinks he's getting out, every time he thinks he's going to live the life that he's always wanted to live, George is made to stumble. And he grows up a very cynical man, frustrated with his life. Till one day, if you remember the movie, he wishes that he'd never been born. And his guardian angel comes to visit him, Clarence Oddbody. The angel from heaven comes and gives him what he wishes. Okay, George, you've never been born. And George Bailey is given a night that he would never forget because he sees exactly what life would look like if he wasn't there. And in fact, he learns that his very ordinary life was filled with a lot of extraordinary events and a lot of extraordinary love. And one of my favorite parts of that, of that lesson that George learns is what brings him back when he's finally realizing All of the things that he lost because he thinks that this extraordinary life that he's been prevented from living is in fact just a lie. The thing that brings him back is his daughter's flower petals that he stuffed in his pocket earlier. (laughs) Zuzu's petals. Earlier in the the movie, remember his little daughter Zuzu has a flower whose petals have have fallen off. And his daughter asks him, paste them back on, daddy. (laughs) And he stuffs those petals in his pocket, thinking nothing of them. And later, when he comes to himself and has that cathartic moment on the bridge where he says, I want to live again. The first thing he does, puts his hand in his pocket and cries tears of joy because those ordinary little flower petals were back in his pocket. Thankful again he is to live an ordinary life. Trying to live extraordinarily is killing us. And ultimately, it's unable to ever bring us that satisfaction, that that achievement, that level of settlement that we so desperately long for. And in fact, one of these influencers recently said this, quote, It almost feels like I'm getting a taste of celebrity, but it's never Consistent, And as soon as you get it, it's gone. And you're constantly trying to get it back. It feels like I'm trying to capture this prize. But I don't even know what the prize is. It's something that exists, but they, they can never get it. They can never grasp it. It's like sand or water in your hands. The more you grip it, the more it leaves their fingers. That's what tracing extraordin- chasing extraordinariness looks like. Like chasing water in your fist. 
It's a life that will beat you up and break you down. And yet that doesn't stop us from trying to go for it. We're addicted to being seen and to being heard and to being recognized and to being celebrated. All of which, I think, makes it all the more remarkable that Jesus' arrival on this earth is so unheralded, so unnoticed, You see, Jesus' ordinary birth, I think, serves to demonstrate to you and to me how highly God values the lowly, how highly God values the ordinary. He values it so much, so much that he himself would become lowly just like you and I. He would become ordinary just like you and just like me. And he values it so much that he would even die for it. The great German theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer says, quote, God is not ashamed of the lowliness of human beings. God marches right in. He chooses people as his instruments and performs his wonders where one would least expect them. God is never near to lowliness. He loves the lost and the neglected and the unseemly and the excluded, the weak and the broken. On a silent night in Bethlehem, the God of the universe demonstrated that type of lowly love. He began his mission of redeeming the universe. How? By coming as a baby in a manger. And I think in so doing, he demonstrates just how unafraid he is of what haunts us, of what torments us. He is not unnerved or put off by our ruin, by our wreckage, by our filth, by our sin. Least of all, by our ordinariness. That doesn't scare him. That's precisely where he sets up shop. The incarnation, you see, what we celebrate every single Christmas season is the glorious fact and the incandescent hope that Christ is God in the flesh. Come down to us as a mere boy, an ordinary baby. And in so doing, what does he do? He sets aside all of the praise and the pomp and circumstance and all the extraordinariness that he rightly deserves as the king of glory. He forgoes all of that, all of that majesty, all of that splendor that he is entitled to in order to show just how deep his love will go to redeem those who are in sin. He comes down. God does not beckon us and call to us and require to us to climb up to him, to scratch and to claw, to get up to where he is. He comes down to us, to our places of heartache and loneliness and ruin and shame and sin. And yes, even to our place of ordinariness. That's where he meets us. Whatever shame that you might have, It does not turn God away. Whatever sin that you are thinking of even right now in this very second does not make God shudder. He comes down to rescue you out of it. And part of celebrating Christmas is just that, being reminded of how ordinary that first Christmas was. Which is a reminder given to us by God himself that our ordinariness is not something that we need to be ashamed of or scared of or frustrated by. 
We don't have to spend our lives chasing the extraordinary. Why? Because in Jesus, we're given something so much better. In Jesus, we are greeted by a God who meets us right in the midst of where we are in our mess and our frustration. And Jesus, God, comes down. He comes close. And what does he say to us? No matter how ordinary you feel, no matter how ruined you are, no matter how messy you might be, no matter how sin, how much sin you might have, I have come for you. And I've accomplished everything for you already. That's who this Jesus is. He is a savior who saves to the uttermost, leaving nothing undone. He was born for you, and he lived for you, and he died for you, and he rose again for you. And to think that it all started in an extraordinarily ordinary stall, more fit for cattle, the smell of manure, hay being his blanket. That's what Jesus did for you and for me. The savior of the world in a lowly cattle stall. The infinite God come as an infant. That's what Christmas is, by the way. A divine reminder that God in Christ comes to give us his grace. Which frees us to find meaning and purpose. Even in the small and the mundane, ordinary lives that we live. Maybe some of you, I don't know, maybe some of you will grow up and you'll have a statue or a building named after you. Or you'll write a New York Times bestseller. But even there, your ordinary life isn't to be something ashamed of. For the most of us, perhaps we won't ever. The frustrating part, as I remember from reading the book of Ecclesiastes, is that in a couple generations from now, we won't even be remembered. The fact is, there's someone who will always remember us. And his name is Jesus. And you who know him, he has your name written on his heart. He has it written in a book which cannot be erased. It is remembered forever. His blood has covered your sins. Your shame is done away because he's taken it on himself. This is what the Savior, who always remembers you and I, ordinary sinners, he remembers us forever. And that's why we can have a very, very merry and very ordinary Christmas. Let us pray.